Hi, Sound Africans. As you know, Sound Africa is working with Open Secrets on a new series called They Kill Dulce, a series about the life and assassination of activist Dulce September. We've spoken to people in places like Denmark, Norway, France, and of course, South Africa. We're excited and looking forward to launching at the end of March. In the meantime, though, we've been listening to some great African podcasts which we'd like to share with you. Over the next few weeks, we're playing an episode from each of our podcast-producing friends. The following episode is made by our friends at Alibi, an investigative podcast series. This is the first episode from the first series and is called The Letters. This episode introduces the story of a possible wrongful conviction where a man, Anthony de Vries, has been in jail for 17 years and still claims to be innocent. You can find the whole series at alibi.org.za. Enjoy. I'm Freddie Mabitella, and welcome to Alibi. This is a show that's going to investigate the case of a single man over eight episodes. A man who has been convicted to life in prison and claims to be innocent after all these years. Honestly, I have a different feel for people who are in prison. Paul McNally is a journalist who works with the Witz Justice Project in Johannesburg. And he says that he's found someone, and this guy might be innocent. I will just say that he has a fighting chance. His name is Anthony de Vries. He's from a suburb just outside Joburg called Ennerdale. He fixed cars and worked with his hands, but now he's greying a little. And really, he has spent most of his life inside prison. And I'm quite sure you get a lot of such cases where people write letters to the Wits Justice Project and they're seeking help and they're all claiming their innocence. Yeah, we get a lot of these letters. We get about six to ten of them every week. Run me through the letters that you receive and the different stories that you've probably encountered. And then maybe we could get to why in particular you chose this story. This one is, um, okay, I'm going to be quoting. I am a 28-year-old male serving life imprisonment of murder I didn't commit. This is Marvin Adams. He's the journalism intern at Justice Project. And one of his jobs is to go through letters from inmates. So this is a letter we, this guy has been writing to us since, I think, a year ago. And he says the DNA evidence can be challenged. Um... We're a group of journalists who look at miscarriages of justice, torture and wrongful conviction. We're based in Witz University in Johannesburg, and we mix journalism and advocacy to investigate stories where the justice system is potentially broken. The doctor's cross-examination was not given in court, and any other forensics experts were not present during the trial date. 
Marvin has a stack of letters with him, and these are only from this week. He picks up another at random. And he's saying he just didn't commit this murder, but he was convicted for this murder. In theory, each one of these letters represents a case that we could do instead of Anthony. It represents another wrongful conviction that we could pursue instead. That means you've heard a lot of endorsements that probably sound like Anthony's many times. <laughs> where people are like, I'm innocent and there's nothing wrong with what I did. So you're quite familiar with uh, this kind of story or someone providing their alibi and you being able to tell yeah, by gut feel if they're right, uh, if they're a little too suspicious. So there were actually several steps to me meeting Anthony DeFries. And it started with a colleague from Justice Project. She introduced me to a woman called Melanie Smith. And I went to go meet Melanie down at her house in Ennerdale, which is just outside of Johannesburg. I went down to Ennerdale in my tiny black Ford. I went on the freeway and drove right up to Melanie's house. And she was so warm to me. I'd never met her before, and she gave me this huge hug. And immediately, she started showing me around her house and pointing out things that were up on the wall. Up on the mantle, Melanie shows me her wedding photo. It's a close-up of her and her husband kissing. His name is Llewellyn, and he's in a grey suit. My mom framed it for our first anniversary. You would never guess this from looking at the photo that Melanie and Llewellyn were married while Llewellyn was still in jail. So my, my family were there, his family were there, and we had a couple of friends of ours. So it was actually very, very nice. And we're supposed to get married in Bavianspurt, but then we got transferred from these. But luckily the people were very nice in one going and they arranged everything first. Llewellyn held up three cigarette trucks while in his early 20s. And for this, he was sentenced to 33 years. It's, it's very difficult sometimes, Paul, but like I say, when you, when you love someone and you know that that person is a good person, regardless of what they've done, do you understand what I'm saying? Because we all make mistakes and we all learn from them. When I asked Melanie if Llewellyn is innocent, she says, of course not. She says he deserves to have been convicted. She sticks to the fact that her husband is guilty of his crimes and should serve out his sentence. Was he with a group of guys? He was with a group of guys. They, do they live right here? All from here. Did they all go to jail as well? Yes, all, all of them. I'm sure I told them if they come home and this shit happens again, they did. Hmm. I would personally kill them. I still don't get how this is going to lead us to Anthony. Llewellyn, the guy in the grey suit in the wedding photo, the one kissing Melanie, He's the guy who directs me to Anthony DeFries through Melanie. She's very harsh on her husband. And she tells me so earnestly that I need to contact this guy, Anthony. You need to speak to this guy, she tells me. So it was all up to the energy that Melanie had put into how she endorses Anthony. Well, I think what did it was that we had this wife and husband team, one of them inside jail and the other outside jail, and they had both discussed and decided that Anthony DeFries was someone that they both endorsed. The way Melanie described it was that Anthony was more innocent than the rest. All right. So now do we get to meet the man? The next step is definitely to give Anthony DeFries a call. 
How's it, Paul? Hi, Anthony. How are you? Uh, excellent, sir, Paul. Is, is now an okay time? Should I call you back later? No, it's okay. You can talk, Paul. I feel nervous speaking to Anthony. He's speaking to me on the phone from Boxburg Correctional Centre. And I'd just like to say that on this first phone call to Anthony, I have no knowledge of his case. I only know how long he's been inside. 17 years. And how insistent he is that he shouldn't have ever been put there. You see, what is the thing? It's because I was sentenced about, how much, I can say, 17 years ago. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Are you dead? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, so I was sentenced 17 years ago and... Since I've tried everything in my power to get things straightened out, but at the time I ended up giving up hope to get justice the straight way, and I just decided to say that I'll do my sentence. Because what I'm doing, I'm doing life. Ne? As you can hear, Anthony is a clear-spoken middle-aged man. He sounds how you hope a man will sound when chasing a wrongful conviction. And and the crime itself was it an armed? What did they hold up these guys? What did they? It was wrong? it was armed robbery. Where in the armed robbery there was two two murders. Okay. Wow. And and what and who what did they rob? Who did they rob? It was a Fidelity card friend that was robbed. Fidelity is a cash and transit company. So think of guys with guns collecting and depositing huge sums of money. Two of the guys working for fatality guards was killed in, in the armed robbery. I am totally stunned by the violence of this crime. I feel like this is a, a scene from a movie that's been described here by Anthony. And his lack of connection to the scene makes me feel like it's someone who's describing a story that's no way related to him. On the 28th of March, 1994, okay, just a few weeks before South Africa's first democratic election, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. A group of six men, actually that number varies depending on the witness, but they are all armed and they're in a white backy and they drive into a checkers in Verenigung. That's like a shopping center for kids and families. People are there doing their weekly shops. Now, the Baki drives through the parking lot right up to the front of the centre, where the shops are. You know, it's nine in the morning. I'm quite sure there were a lot of witnesses which could have made this a very simple, easy-to-spot case to say, no, we've seen that guy, eyewitnesses, and uh, what's not to just really pin down the, these guys. Well, that is something we're going to get into for sure in later episodes. The truth is, there were a lot of shoppers there. And that means potentially a lot of witnesses. So this gang holds up two security guards with AK-47s and shoots them dead. The police soon arrive at the checkers. And what they see is a complete bloodbath. There are two grown white men with their faces blown off. Sounds like a very gruesome scene. You know, the police were in an extremely awkward situation in the period just before and after 94. This is Johan Berger. He's a senior researcher at the Institute of Security Studies in Pretoria. He says that at this time, in 1994, the South African police were struggling with all the changes that the country was going through. These changes happened very, very quickly. You know, uh, for both the police and the military, I mean... 
who are fighting an, an, a prolonged or protracted war against an insurgency, as it was seen at the time. Suddenly, the politicians were talking to these insurgents. This immense pressure that the police were under would have made them pretty eager to find a suspect quickly, especially for a crime like the murder of two white security guards. In 1994, this kind of heist cash-in-transit crime was excessively violent and quite unusual. There was a lot of fear amongst, or concerns, perhaps a better word, amongst uh, police officers at the time about how this might affect them, because everyone understood that if there's a negotiated settlement, that, um, that a, an ANC government would probably take over because of the majority support. And, um, and, and there was lots of concerns amongst police officers already during that period before 1994 that this, uh, or how this could affect them. So now give me more details about Anthony and this case. Another reason why we should be following Anthony's case is that he has his paperwork. And this is so rare with people claiming to be wrongfully convicted. If you think back to those letters at the beginning of the episode that Marvin was going through, so few of those come with legitimate paperwork. It's just their story. But Anthony has all his paperwork. And this means that he's willing for us to scrutinize his story. Not just what he says, not just his side of the story, but also what was said in court and what has been said by others about him. But what I'll do, I will... I don't know how we will do with uh, giving you these uh, documents, etc., my case files and all those things, because I've got everything in my possession. So we can just make arrangements and I can hand those things over to you. Okay, okay. I will send the things either with my brother or so, then you can arrange with him to get everything. Anthony is serving life, and he was convicted on a number of charges. First of all, the murder of two security guards. Second, robbery. 130,000 rand in cash was stolen that day at the Chequers. And third, he was convicted of two charges of attempted murder. Now, these attempted murder charges we are going to get into in a later episode. And how they come about is insane. At the scene, at this moment, there's police officers arriving and we have them investigating at the Chequers. And where is Anthony at that moment? Well, Anthony claims he had nothing to do with this crime. Okay, but now, what's his alibi? What story is he providing? Where was he if he wasn't at the checkers? He actually says that he was hitchhiking his way to a job interview for a pipe-fitting job. You see what happened is, on, the, on that specific day, actually, I, I got a love by a few guys with a barkeep because I was hitchhiking from the... On the for on the for innocent road. So Anthony says before he reaches this interview, he was hit on the head, he was mugged, he was left bleeding and disorientated. And actually, this is his alibi, the fact that he was attacked. And unfortunately, the alibi also leaves him just a few kilometers away from the place of the murders. Those guys on the party, what happened that day? I was robbed and I was assaulted. When he was wandering around, disorientated, covered in blood, he saw police officers in the felt. And he actually walked up to them and asked them for help. But instead of helping him, the police replied by rounding him up 
as a suspect to the murders. Okay, so that's Anthony's alibi. He says he was not at the scene. He was on his way to a job interview elsewhere. And he is also a victim of a crime. Then Anthony hands me a kicker that begins to emotionally suck me in. It's a story about what happened to him years before his arrest, when he was a teenager in high school. The police came to his house. And this was in the late 80s, remember, during apartheid. Those days, what they came there and they were looking for my brother. My brother was, they were looking for my, my elder brother. Uh, As they were looking for him, they didn't find him at home and they took me. At the time, the police were hunting for his brother Selwyn. Now, Anthony has told me that Selwyn had political leanings. And as they were searching the house, they found some political documents and, and things like that also in the house. And that was when they arrested me and they took me. They were looking for Selwyn because he was anti-apartheid, because he was against the government. And when they failed to find Selwyn, they took Anthony instead. It was 1989, 1990, that period when they took me. It was a whole range of policemen that was actually because they took me from Transkei, they, they assaulted me, they took me to East London. Anthony was tortured by a gang of apartheid policemen for three weeks. They actually took him all the way to Durban and they kept him in the back of their van as their plaything. And all that way it was like assault and then they brought me back to Brixton murder and robbery where they tortured me. And it was maybe something like a three-week ordeal that I had with them. A three-week ordeal? Yes. It was for about three weeks that I was with them and they were torturing me, assaulting me up and down. My family was running up and down looking for me. Because it was during apartheid, right? So do you feel that they, it was a sort of a racially motivated attack? No, it was. It was. It was. This story from Anthony about how he was tortured by the police in high school, it scandalized me. I felt sorry for him. The violence meant he couldn't concentrate while he was at school, so he dropped out. He never finished high school as a result. It completely destroyed his life. They arrested me in, I was staying in Transkei, and they tortured me. There was a case of, I even made a case of, for torturing me. So Anthony laid torture charges against the police. It was a gang of police officers who tortured him, but Anthony singled out one as a kind of ringleader, Warrant Officer Jacques Marais. Now, we're going to search for a response from Marais and the other police officers in a later episode. The torture charges that Anthony brought against the police stuck, and he was awarded an out-of-court settlement of 35,000 rand. That was a lot of money back in the day. His settlement was awarded by Adrian Flock, who at the time was the Minister of Law and Order and would go on to become the Minister of Correctional Services. However, the police officers, including the one that Anthony had singled out, Jacques Marais, went free. In fact, they all remained working in the police. How has that changed your thinking of Anthony's innocence? He's been a victim in his life, and I know that, and I can't let it cloud my judgment about a crime that he might have committed years later. So on the day of the murder, two security guards are gone down 
But on the other hand, Anthony, at the very same instance, is hitchhiking to a job interview and gets mugged. Right, that's exactly what happened. So he's mugged, and this means he gets covered in blood. He's then kicked out of the vehicle that he's in, and he sort of scampers away. He sees a policeman in the felt, and he runs up towards him. When I saw police in the area, I went to that police. When I went to them for help, they arrested me and they took me to the scene. So this man was looking for help, trying to say, okay, safe haven, here are the police, let me tell them, you know, the crime that has just been committed against me. No, you know what, looking at the history that he has with police officers, this is a guy who should be hating the police. I don't get why he would voluntarily run towards the police. Yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. I mean, he was so anti the police, he actually carried around a letter with him at all times from Lawyers for Human Rights saying that he must never be interviewed by the police without a lawyer present. This was because of his past. This was because he'd been tortured while in high school. And then to run to the police for help seems a little dubious. The time when they, when they arrested me, they knew me immediately because we knew each other. Yeah, they, they knew me from before due to the cases that I had previously against murder and robbery. Anthony claims the police, when they found him in the felt, recognised him immediately. And not for the reasons that you might expect. Instead of helping him, because remember, he's covered in blood at this point, they revel in the coincidence of who they found. They have found Anthony de Vries. They take Anthony to the investigating officer, who is busy commanding the scene. Shreve said to him, Emre, look who, we, who we've got here. This is the second I realise that Anthony's torture episode in Durban and the security guard murders are linked. And not just because they both involve the police, but Anthony's torturer in Durban and the investigating officer for the security guard murders, for which Anthony was convicted, is the same guy. It's warrant officer Jacques Marais. It's the same guy, just years later. Anthony is brought to the scene covered in blood, and he stares his old torturer in the eye. We discovered that Jacques Marais and Anthony have a violent history together. It's a huge miscarriage of justice that this was never disclosed at trial, right? So Anthony and Marais have got this history together, and no one in court is ever told about it even though there is evidence to show that Anthony did tell his trial lawyer of the relationship. It's like I just want to go on and live my life and put all this, this chapter. It's a part of my life that I just want to put behind me. So, so why did you agree to talk to me, did you think? You see, the, the reason why I agreed to talk to you is, you know, I would, at the end of the day, knowing that how hard it was for me to... Maybe, you see, actually, it's good to believe that someone will actually get something right with us. Anthony sounds broken. Like allowing this slight amount of hope to enter his voice is somehow painful for him. There's a pause on the phone, and he thinks about what it would mean for me to investigate his case further. And then he says... 
actually, if everything can come out in the open, it would be a good thing for me to see that one day if maybe there is someone who can get through to say that, to show that you know, those people were actually lying in court. Not to say that I want anything out of it or what, just to expose, to say that, no, these people, they were actually lying, and it can actually be proven that they were, they were lying because, you know, these people, they will go to the extreme. Anthony had many lawyers over the years, but the first lawyer that he contacted when he was arrested, upon hearing Anthony's alibi that he'd been mugged and hit on the head and all those things, drafted a statement saying that Anthony was not a suicide risk. And this was because his lawyer understood Anthony's past and he had reason to fear the police and thought that they may murder Anthony if he was left overnight in a cell. So if Anthony was killed by the police, the claim the next day would be suicide. Now, a statement drafted by the lawyer was a warning shot to the police, saying, faking Anthony's suicide is not an option. I just want to know... Does Anthony have a family of his own? He has a mother who's still alive. She lives down in Ennerdale where he grew up and she is praying for him every day to be released. Anthony also has three children who were incredibly young when he went inside and they have missed him their entire lives. His absence has had a profound effect on his children. His eldest daughter is 21 years old. I still remain you know, on my own views of the fact that, you know what, he is in prison, he's been convicted, surely there's something he did wrong. And I'm still on the fence. I'm asking how you feel now about Anthony's innocence. I have to admit to you that I switch from guilty to innocent to guilty on this case every day, every hour. I mean, the fact that he was mugged at the very same instance that the crime took place triggered a sense of uh, he could be lying from my side. Yeah, it's too clean. It's too convenient. It sounds made up. It's the kind of story you tell when you immediately have to think of something and you're kind of put on the spot. What still makes you think that he could be innocent at this point? Okay, we're overlooking the fact that we have a possibility here of a revenge story. The same police officer, Jacques Marais, who was involved in torturing Anthony when he was in high school, later on became his investigating officer that ended up putting him in jail for most of his life. The fact that Anthony pressed charges against Jacques Marais and won could have given him a motive. To frame Anthony, we have no idea what this kind of history could have done to the case. The investigating officer touches everything, and this means it brings everything in this case into question. I'm not saying that we know Jacques Marais acted differently because of his past with Anthony, but my goodness... It definitely means we should pursue Anthony's case, especially because this fact was never brought up at his trial. So where are we heading next? So I'm heading off to see Anthony's brother Selwyn and collect his court records. Is this the same brother Selwyn who the cops were looking for in the late 80s and couldn't find and instead found Anthony, our guy, who got tortured? Yeah, this is the same guy. Anthony tells me his brother Selwyn was very political, like he was deep involved in the struggle 
fighting for the end of apartheid. And that's why the cops were looking for him on that fateful day when they took Anthony instead. And really, I want to know if Selwyn feels responsible for his brother being tortured. And also, I want to know what Selwyn thinks of this police officer, Jacques Marais. You've been listening to Alibi. This is the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. I'm Freddie Mabitela. Alibi is investigated, edited, produced, and written by Paul McNally. It is brought to you by the Vitz Radio Academy, Vitz Justice Project, and is part of the Citizen Justice Network. Editorial oversight is given by Franz Kruger and Nusheen Efani. Production oversight and music is composed by John Batman. Extra script editing and production is by Elna Schutz. Mixed by Kutwano Serame. Additional editorial help by Gavin Haynes, Tom McNally, and Kyla Hemmonson. We are based in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find our podcast on alibi.org.za or on iTunes. Join us next week for episode two of Alibi, the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. Next week on Alibi, Paul visits Anthony's brother, Selwyn, and gets shown a few pictures of the crime scene. What is, can you describe that? Is that him? That's him. Yeah. But where, what, where's, what's all the blood from? I mean, so he's, he's got, his face is covered in blood. Yeah. I don't know where he was hit by the cops. Jeez, is that one of the guys who was shot? He was shot. I don't like to look at pictures like that. Oh, this is not nice. You have been listening to a podcast by Alibi. This episode was produced, edited by Paul McNally and co-presented by Freddie Mabizela. Music production is by John Batman. Mixing and mastering was done by Kutlano Serrami. To help Alibi, Sound Africa, or any other of your favorite African podcasts, give a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. And of course, if you like what you heard, share it with the people you like. If you know of a great African podcast we should share with our listeners, get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or on our website. My name is Neo Rakajani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>